glad you're in a church that believes in the authority, the infallibility, the inerrancy, the authority of the scripture. Uh, you know, it's such a blessing to be able, over the years, I've had opportunities to speak in a lot of our churches. And, you know, one thing that's always so great is to know when you go to a PCA church that it's a solid church that stands on God's word. And we also realize there's tremendous power in the word, don't we? There's tremendous power in the word. I uh, heard a story, this is a true story about an elderly lady. This happened in Tennessee. And there was a headline of the paper that said, Power in the Word. That was the headline. And the story went on to tell about this elderly lady who was awakened during the middle of the night. Somebody broke in her house. And she immediately knew what to do. She got on the phone. She dialed 911. She called the police. And she was very still. She stayed in her room for a while. And then she couldn't stand it anymore. She heard this bumping around downstairs. She was upstairs. And so she walked out on the stairwell, and as she looked down, sure enough, there was a man who was walking toward the front door with some of her things in his hands, going to the door. And she immediately yelled out, Acts 238! Acts 238! And you know what that says, you look it up. Acts 238. The guy froze. This is a true story, man. The guy froze. And sure enough, about that time, blue light came out front. Two police officers came to the house, arrested the guy, put handcuffs on him, took him out, put him in the car, and they're taking him down to book him. And all the way down, this one policeman turns to him and says, listen, I, I've got to ask you, uh, why in the world didn't you run? What were you doing just standing there? He says, man, when that old lady told me she had an action 238, I wasn't going nowhere. <laughs> talking over the weekend about, uh, about Christian living in a fallen world, and I've suddenly been leading you up to the conclusion here, which is that we're more than conquerors through Christ who loved us, and there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. We're going to look at that passage in a minute and, and look at this final section, but let me tell you what I've tried to develop, and I hope you've gotten this. Living in a fallen world becomes almost, if not impossible, without understanding the presence of Jesus in your life. You have Jesus. You can experience his presence. He is in your life. It's no longer I who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me in the life. And it's his love that controls me. It's his joy that fills me. It's his peace that comes to me. His peace, his joy, his power that enables me to live in this world. Now, in living in this world, we will face suffering when you pass through the waters. I'll be, we will. We'll go through times. And there are some people who all of their lives will go through suffering. We have people in parts of the world who, for their stand for Jesus, are persecuted severely. And they will be persecuted all of their lives. We have people who are born with affliction. And they never get set free from those afflictions. There are people who go through times of distress, and it seems that there's one after the other, and it almost seems, will this ever end? And to be perfectly honest, sometimes those times of suffering just don't end on this earth. But what is the difference? We have Christ. We have his power to withstand 
We have his presence to encourage. We have his joy, even though the circumstances are difficult. We have his peace because we have absolute confidence in him. So when we go through those times of sufferings, we aren't exempt from them, but we have Jesus to take us through them. And in this world, we will face opposition. We will. The enemy is powerful. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And we have to be armed, as you said, Martin. We have to be armed. We have to be prepared. We're involved in warfare. We're in enemy territory. We must be prepared for the battles that come. But there's one last piece to this. We have Christ with us. We will face suffering. We will go through times of opposition. But the ultimate end is absolute victory. That's the ultimate end. And whatever suffering, whatever opposition you may be facing, there is that eternal hope of the glory of Jesus Christ that gets away us. Which is why Paul would write that all of the suffering of this present time is not worth comparing with that glory. Now I want us to read Romans 8. Starting at verse 31. This is God's word. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, our distress, our persecution, our famine, our nakedness, our danger, our sword, as it is written, for your sake, we're all being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is God's word. Father, as we talk about victory now, would you give us that great hope that is ours, that we are more than conquerors through him who loves. We pray this in his name. Amen. Jesus Christ is victorious. Now and in the future. In the present and in the world to come. We've talked about the enemy, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And you realize that Jesus has already overcome the world. He said, in the world you will have tribulation. But then he adds, but I have overcome the world. 
And there's a picture when you get to the end of God's story, when you come to the book of Revelation, and the great climax comes, and there is this vision, a picture of the king coming in victory. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one on it is called Faithful and True and in Righteousness. He judges, and he makes war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, can you picture it? Here is the king, the conquering king, coming with the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. They were following him on white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. What is it? King of kings and Lord of lords. There's the picture. See, this is the ultimate end. Here's the picture of the king coming armed for battle. Armies of heaven coming for the final defeat. And then there's Babylon. That harlot, the world, and she's taken and she's thrown into the pit forever and ever and ever. He conquers the world and he brings that final judgment. And even these heavens and earth as we know them today will be destroyed. And then God is going to recreate a new heavens and a new earth. And what's unique about them is only righteousness dwells in. Can you imagine what it's going to be like? You know, often I think we so spiritualize this, we don't get it. We're talking about physical heavens and earth. Real place. With us, when we are glorified, we get our bodies back. We have real bodies again. Isn't it interesting, we were talking to, to a couple of folks walking down here and said, you know, we may never see you again on this earth. But isn't it neat to think that we'll see you in glory? And that we'll be together through all of glory in new heavens and a new earth. You think this is beautiful? Oh, it's nothing of what is yet to come. That is the great promise. Jesus has conquered the world. And you know what? He's also given us victory over the flesh. His redemptive work gave us victory over the power of sin. Romans 6. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like him. Here it is. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God and Jesus Christ. Let not sin Therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Now, notice carefully what it says. The power of sin, our enslaving, enslavement to sin, has now been brought to an end through Jesus. Before we had Christ, we were slaves to sin. We could do no other but live in sin. It had power over us. But now that Jesus has come, Jesus has conquered that. 
And the body of sin that he refers to in that passage is the rule of sin that's at work in you, the dominion of sin that's at work in your life. And now he says that power has been broken and we have been set free. You know, the beautiful Old Testament picture of the people out of their slavery in Egypt when God delivered them into freedom. And that's the picture here. We were enslaved to sin. But now Christ has conquered that and has freed us. And now what we have been called to do is to crucify the flesh. It enables us, the redemptive work of Jesus enables us to crucify the flesh, this passions and desires. Now I want to spend just a few minutes on this to talk about crucifying the flesh. Stay with me. Jesus by his death and resurrection has freed us from the power and control and dominion of sin. But remember, we still struggle. What does he also enable us to do? He enables us this constant battle that we're in with the flesh and the spirit. He enables us to take that flesh to take those sinful desires and to crucify them. I want to read you this quote. The first great secret of holiness lies in the degree and the decisiveness of our repentance. Now here's what I want you to stay with me. You know those sins in your life. Hebrews speaks of that sin that so easily entangles us. Most of us have sins that we wrestle with and we wrestle with and we hate them and we want to get rid of them but we can't seem to get rid of them. Do you understand that God has already given us the victory, given us the ability to do this and we have to in faith come with deep sense of repentance. The degree of the decisiveness of our repentance and besetting sins, those are those sins that we continue to struggle with, persistently plague us. It is either because we've never truly repented or because having repented, we have not maintained our repentance. It is if, having nailed our own nature to the cross, we keep wistfully returning to the scene of its execution. We begin to fondle it, to caress it, to long for its release, even to try to take it down from the cross. Do you see? Those things in your life that you struggle with. You've taken them and you've crucified them. You've given them to Jesus on the cross. But the problem is we keep going back and we almost want to reach up and we want to take them back. Right? That's what he's talking about. This is what he says. We need to learn to leave it there. When some jealous or proud or malicious or impure thought invades our minds, we must kick it out at once. It is fatal to begin to examine it and to consider whether we're going to give in. Can you relate to this? Those things that you keep coming, and you know, they come back into your life and you, oh, well, maybe, mm, oh, yes. We begin to examine it, consider whether we're going to give in to it. We have declared war on it. We're not going to resume negotiations. We've settled the issue for good. We're not going to reopen it. We have crucified the flesh. We are never going to draw the nails out. There's a determination. 
that I'm going to live for the king. And I'm going to fight that battle of the flesh. And I'm not going, I've crucified it, I'm not going back and trying to take it back again. There's a wonderful work of Thomas Chalmers, one of those great Puritan writers. It's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And this is what he said, misplaced affections need to be replaced by the far greater power of the affection of the gospel. A new affection is more successful in replacing an old affection than simply trying to end it without supplanting it with something better. Now here's what he's saying. He's, you, you know how all those times in your life, you know you're struggling with these things and you, and you keep saying, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. But you do it. You see what he's saying is, the problem is, that it is much more difficult to ever try to displace one until you put something back in its place. And I hinted at this the other day when I talked about the love of Christ controlling us. I told you that on the seat of the affections of your heart, there is something. And most often, it's our own selfish desires. And so what Thomas Chalmers is saying is, he says we have to, we have to, we have to get rid of those selfish desires, but we can't, we can't just get rid of them, but we, have, we take the affection of the gospel. We take the love of Christ and we put it on the seat of the affections of our hearts. You see, when we begin to do that and we look at the far greater power of the affection of the gospel, what we have to do is identify those things, those epithumia, those desires, those things that we want too much. And here's what we have to do. When we see those things, we have to look at the cross and we have to look at Jesus. And I tried to walk you through the depth of his suffering for us. We have to go back and think, that sin of mine caused Jesus to bear that cross. See it? That sin of mine that I so flippantly go back to caused Jesus to suffer for me. For me. And I begin to look at that. And then I, I think in my head, I dare not go try to take it down again. Because my Savior died for me to free me from that. That's what it means crucify the flesh. But we also have to, Jesus also enables us to keep in step with the Spirit. We have to settle our minds on the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is peace. And above all, we must desire what Jesus desires. You see what I'm saying? We have to take off our own desires off that and we have to put on what does the Spirit desire? And what does the Spirit desire above everything else? Do you know what it is? To glorify Jesus. That's what the Spirit desires more than anything else. And so we set our minds on the things of the Spirit, the things that the, the, things that the Spirit desires, we desire. And the Scripture says, but when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. And what? He shall glorify me. And when I'm walking in step with the Spirit, here's what I'm saying to you. 
when I'm walking in step, you understand that life? I'm walking in step. I'm walking in line with the Spirit. When I'm doing that, I'm wanting what the Spirit wants. And what does the Spirit want above everything else? The Spirit wants to glorify Jesus Christ. And it's then that the Spirit will show us the beautiful glory of Christ. And to the degree that we see that glory of Christ, we will be set free from those things that become too important to us. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. We have to take those old things of the flesh, the cross, and crucify. A decisive move, a decisive action. And there we go back. But at the same time, there must be something else put on the seat of the affection of our heart. What the Spirit wants. And what does the Spirit want? To glorify Jesus. And to the degree that we see the beauty of Christ and the love of Christ, we will be able and willing to let go of those things that we're holding too tightly in our hands. Jesus gives us that ability. So he gives us ability, he, he gives us victory over the world, he gives us the victory over the flesh as we crucify the flesh, keep it set with the spirit, but he also gives us victory over the devil. I love this passage in Colossians. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The cross of Christ marks the decisive defeat of demonic powers. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire, Satan's ultimate doom, and you know Luther's great hymn, right? And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word. What is the little word? Jesus. <coughs> Jesus <coughs> is victorious over the world. He's overcome. He gives us victory over the flesh because we're no longer in bondage to it. And he gives us the, he enables us to crucify the flesh and to walk in line with the spirit. And Satan's doom is sure. Because on the cross where Satan thought he had the victory, it was his sure demise. But there is one last enemy. And it's called death. 
Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he died, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. 1 Corinthians 15, for he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. When believers are finally resurrected from the dead, the destruction of death will be complete. And death will come to an end. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see it? Jesus has conquered the world. And Jesus has conquered the flesh, the power. And Jesus has conquered the enemy, Satan. And he has conquered the last enemy, death. Now that brings us to Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? Now let me stop you right here. When Paul is writing this, remember context is critical. When Paul is writing this, what has he just said? What shall we say to these things? What has he just said? Let me remind you. That's what he just said. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Let me stop. Do you believe that? Will you stake your life on that? That even the worst things of your life, the tragedies of your life, the disappointments of your life, the suffering in your life, no matter how bad it is, we know, we know something. We know that for those who love God, even those things work together. I don't know if you've ever looked under a tapestry, under the underside of it, but sometimes it makes no sense. It's only when you get to the other side and you look down on the top side that you see the beautiful order of an artist who created it. From the lower side, it makes no sense. There are things in your life that aren't going to make sense. But I'm going to tell you, we get to the other side. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He predestined, He conformed to the image of His Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? You see it? See the flow? I Romans 8, 28. God is going to take the worst things of my life and somehow Turn him to my good and his glory. And he is going to take me through. He called me. He, he chose me. He called me. He justified me. He sanctified me. And he will glorify me. What shall we say to these things? And in a sense, what you're left with is your speech. You say it. And then he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And we've already seen 
There are fierce and terrible forces that work against us. But God is more powerful than them all. If God is for us, who can be against us? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us. If God did this for us, surely he will freely give us all things to bring us in conformity to his son. And who shall bring a charge against God's elect? We've been chosen by God. We're in a legal relationship with him. We talk about covenant. We're in a covenantal relationship. That's a legal relationship with him. And here is the illustration of a law court. And who is the great accuser? Satan. But the verdict is rendered. The verdict is rendered. God is the one who justifies. Satan has no ground to accuse us because God has justified us, declared us not guilty, and imputed the perfect righteousness of Christ to us. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? And by the way, when you hear that little voice that questions you and says, oh, you claim to be a Christian, and do you remember what you did? You remember what you said. You remember four years ago you did this. You remember you did. And you hear that voice you say, who will bring a charge against the elect of God? Because God has justified me. And all of that guilt and all of that shame is gone forever. Because God justified me. See? Who is the one who condemns? What is the fundamental proposition of the 8th chapter of Romans? What's the first verse of the 8th chapter of Romans? First verse. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who is the one who condemns? And then he gives a summary of the mediatorial work of Christ. He who died, who bore the punishment, was raised proof that we are justified, proof that God accepted it. He's seated at the right hand. His work is finished and God is satisfied. And he continues to make intercession for us. He continues to intercede to secure the benefits of his death for his people. Who is the one who condemns? And then the climax. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Notice it's not our love for Christ, but his love for us. Boy, if it was the other way around, we'd be in trouble. Wouldn't we? <laughs> Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? His love is an all-powerful love, which means that nothing, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And thus he says, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Now, we live in a fallen world. Christians will face suffering, pain, and troubles. We will face opposition from our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the question is, how can we stand against all of this? Will we fail our Lord? Will we fall from grace? Martin Lloyd-Jones, his wonderful commentary on the 8th chapter of Romans, says this. We're not simply enabled by his love to hold on and not to fall away or fall. Neither is it the case that we just manage to obtain a, a victory. We are more than conquerors, a very strong expression. The Christian is not a man who manages somehow or another just to obtain an entrance into heaven. He is more than conqueror. He not merely stands up to these trials, he demolishes them. He is enabled to overcome them completely. He not merely conquers them, he is more than conqueror. And let us not forget that death is included. Everything that can possibly come against us is included. How can these things be? Because the love of Christ will never let us go. You remember that beautiful old hymn? Oh, love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe. That in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. What ultimately is the assurance of our victory? It's that wonderful doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. God will not let us go. He will not. We can never completely assign and fall out of his state of grace. But rather we are kept by God. The Westminster Confession puts it this way. This endurance of the saints does not depend on their own free will but on God's unchangeable decree of election, flowing from his voluntary, unchangeable love. It also depends upon the effectiveness of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ on the indwelling spirit and indwelling seed of God in all the saints and in the nature of the covenant of grace. All these establish the certainty and infallibility of their preservation. It depends not upon us, but it depends upon God. And God will never, ever let you go. Here. You see, when you turn Romans 8 around, it's the decree of God that settles the issue of our eternal destiny. Who shall bring the charge against God's elect? Nobody, because God is the one who elects. It's the power of God that assures us that nothing can separate us from God's grace. It is, if God is for us, who can be against us? The work of Christ guarantees our salvation. Christ Jesus is the one who died. And the love of God will not let us go. Who shall separate us from the love of God? And the indwelling spirit guarantees our eternal inheritance. We are more than conquerors through Christ who loves. And it is the love of God that makes our victory certain. And beloved, I'm going to tell you, 
nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Not death, nor life, nor angels, or rulers, or things present, or things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else. Because you see, Jesus has come to death. He is the Lord of life. I'm the first and the last. He's disarmed rulers and authorities. He is the ruler of all things present. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And he is the Lord of the future. Whatever is to come on the Alpha and the Omega. Who was and who is and who is to come the Almighty. And he's seated far above all rule and authority and power. There's no height greater than his. Nor death he descended to the lowest parts of the earth. Christ is greater and more powerful than anything else in all of creation. Do you see it? And that's what Paul is hammering home. We are more than conquerors. The victory has been won in Jesus. It gives us great security in the gospel. How wonderful, how glorious, how secure is the gospel. Those who are in Christ Jesus are as secure as the love of God. The merit, power, and intercession of Christ can make them. They're hedged in around with mercy. They are enclosed in the arms of everlasting love. Well, close with this. Jesus is coming again. Do you believe that? Amen. Jesus is coming again. And all things will be restored and made right. Thinking of that glorious hope, that second coming of our hearts, our hearts begin to throb with joy. Our souls are consumed with yearning, with breathless impatience. Our eyes attempt to pierce that dark, tremendous sea of clouds, hoping that the glorious descent of the Son of Man may burst upon the view. It is a longing with, which gushes into words, and the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And he that hears, let him say, Come. Don't you this morning want to say, Come, Lord Jesus, and make things right. And he will. But until he comes, he's with us now. And he'll give us the victory. But what do my eyes behold? Already he is with me. With me in the spirit, walking in the midst of the golden lampstands. You remember the lampstands in the opening chapter of the book of Revelation that stood for the churches? He's walking in the midst of his people. And so right now, here's the thought. Jesus is here. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last, and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. More than confidence we are through him who loved. Thank you.
king who rides upon the white horse, leading the armies of heaven to bring about the final victory. And thank you that you have conquered the world, the flesh and the devil, and that you have made us more than conquerors through you who loved us, and that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Amen. And so I pray this morning as we come to an end of our weekend together, that Lord, even in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our opposition, in the midst of all the difficulties that take place in this world in which we live, that we find that amazing, incredible presence of you, Jesus, in us. That we would be strengthened with your power. That your love would control us. That your peace would surround us. And that you would give us your joy so that our joy may be even in the midst of our difficulties. This morning I pray, God, I pray, Jesus, that we sense your right hand upon us and you saying to us, fear not. Fear not. I have overcome and because I am, you are more than conquerors. We give you thanks as we pray this in your precious and holy and